Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode number 27 of the Forever Strength Podcast. I'm Andrew Coates with Bailey Lau. She's nodding her head and smiling. And uh, we have a special guest today. We've got Dr. Susie Spurlock. And uh, Susie is a doctor of physical therapy and extensive experience within strength and conditioning. Currently about to finish a CSCS, Certified Strength and Conditioning uh, uh, designation. Um, but has a lot of expertise in that realm and is generally known as Dr. Susie Squats, right? Yes, Dr. Susie Squats. It's so, funny how many people ask me if Squats is my real last name, but it's not. <laughs> I wish it was sometimes. I actually had on my other podcast, uh, Brianna Battles, and who does a ton of really incredible stuff in the uh, peri-pregnancy, like postpartum space, all that sort of training. And when I first was exposed to her stuff, I actually thought her surname was just a moniker, but it's actually Battles is her last name. So. And then here's me using squats and it's nowhere near my last name, but it's fine. Hey, my both, both squats and spurlock start with an S, so I'm kind of close. So what else is really cool that you're proud of that you've accomplished in your career? Anything else you want to share with us? So I actually just launched my first ever strength and conditioning with a side of hypertrophy um, program this past Saturday. It's a group training online program, I'm holding it through an app and I'm so excited for that. And it's only been a few days, but everyone's loving it. And it's so much fun to interact with people on a more personal level and try and get some good science backed programming out there for people to try. Cool. So we're, we're very much on the same page with that stuff, right? Yeah. We have our group strength training program, which we just finished our fourth intake. So it's currently closed and we'll reboot our opening. We do th- rounds of 13 week programming. And I mean, honestly, I don't think I barely can speak for herself, but I don't think I envision just kind of the impact or the, the excitement or the way that people have responded to it in terms of how much value they see in it. So uh, we've seen, there's just so much potential here. And so I, I think it's a great way like we can come around to this one after yeah. I want to talk about, you know, what you see in terms of potential for impact and scaling, but Bailey's prepared a lot of stuff for us. So let's hear her voice. Well, I wouldn't say a lot, but anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's, it's good to have coaches that are in the group space that know what they're talking about, not, you know, fitness influencers and so on, but um, yeah, well, just, I guess if <clears throat> Wanted to get more into um, how you got into strength training. I'd like to know where yeah. that's. So I actually, I grew up playing soccer. So I was a big athlete, sport person, playing soccer growing up. Um, didn't play in college just because I really wanted to focus on going to school and keeping my good grades. Um, mm-hmm. Because I wanted to, I knew, I knew I wanted something to do in the medical field, but I didn't really know what yet. Um, and so actually we're going to get real personal real quick. So I got into weightlifting and strength training my sophomore year of undergrad when I went through a really bad mental health spell with depression, anxiety, a relationship was falling apart. I actually dropped out of undergrad sophomore year and then moved home, regrouped, and then started back the following year um, at a different university. So weightlifting has a special place in my heart because it kind of helped pull me out of a super dark time in my life. And it's just been one of those things that has also challenged me personally as a human being and has taught me so much more than just picking up stuff off the ground. Like it is insane how much I've learned and how important lifting has become in my life. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, Yeah, as a sophomore thing always confuses me. What is that? Second year in undergraduate study. Okay. okay. Um, we just say first year, second year. But anyway, um, well, that's good. I'm glad you found that. And I, I hope more people utilize that sort of um, beneficial thing for, for mental health. That's awesome. Um, so is that what has kept you going? Or how would you speak to um, that? So I, that's why I started. And I just kept going just because of how much fun I was having with it. And then another thing I'll add is I grew up pretty darn skinny, <laughs> like super teeny girl, super petite, and got made fun of a lot growing up for how small I was, especially playing soccer and things like that. And that kind of sucked. So once I started weightlifting and saw myself gaining muscle mass and getting strength and how powerful I felt and how much bigger I got, I was like, okay, this is dope. I'm staying around for this because <laughs> I like how I feel. I like how I look. And I just like how it feels to pick heavy stuff up off the ground, honestly. 
Just to be strong is the best feeling. Yeah. Did you ever go back into soccer? I did not. I played intramural soccer in physical therapy school. Um, yes, the grad students were allowed to play intramural sports, which they probably shouldn't allow, have allowed that because either a lot of us got hurt or we totally just kicked ass and the undergrads were really upset. Well, either or. That's funny. Yes. Yeah, well, I was just going to ask if you noticed a difference um, being able to hold your own on the field and stuff after putting on some muscle. It's hard to say if I can compare between the two, because obviously when I first started weightlifting, I didn't really do as much conditioning. And so whenever I would play in grad school, I mean, yeah, I was able to kick the ball harder and things like that. But when it came to the conditioning part and the running part, obviously I was, my lungs were like, no, we're done. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> really, I mean, a lot of the stuff, Susie, you've been talking about, it sounds, it's such a obvious parallel to Bailey's career and in history too is Bailey's played pretty high level soccer even up to right now so when you're hearing this Bailey does this kind of parallel what your experience is like um I well yes I was sort of a cardio junkie my first two and a half years um because I, I played in university so my first two going into my third season I was it was all running 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 um but yeah, when I noticed a difference when I started lifting up heavy things and putting them down that it made a huge difference to my performance on the field. But you are right in soccer and in most sports, you have to train both. You can't just be good at one, unfortunately, unless you're a power lifter or, you know, marathon or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you are a physio th physical therapist. Yes. Yeah. You can say physiotherapist, physio, physical therapist, PT. They're all they all mean the same thing. Yeah, I figured I just, um, so how do you, how do you think that that factors into how you coach your group sessions and how do you think, what do you think the overlap is between so, that exercising? Yeah, I think there is a lot of overlap in how much I learned in PT school for the anatomy and the biomechanics portion of it all, because we go really heavy and deep into all of that. Um, so it's given me a better idea of how to modify sessions or kind of throw in sort of treatments within sessions with certain clients and things like that versus just, okay, let's work on your strength, which I know a lot of seasoned strength and conditioning coaches have that ability as well. But I feel like that's kind of something that sets me different because I can kind of feel like I can look for other things during movement patterns when we're reviewing form videos and I'm a little bit quicker on my feet to find different modifications or exercises that could help someone who's possibly experiencing pain with one thing or the other. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. Well, I mean, having more knowledge is important. But so I will say, although I am a physical therapist, I kind of dislike 90% of the physical therapy world. <laughs> because physical therapists are not strength coaches. And in physical therapy school, you get zero training on proper, I don't wanna say proper lifting mechanics because I hate those three words together. It's just <laughs> it's the top of my head. But you get no training in weightlifting. You get no training in conditioning, strength training, none of it. It's mainly just really easy therapeutic exercises with bands. So I'm a physical therapist, but I'm, I would say I probably associate myself more with the strength and conditioning community than I do with physical therapy. Yeah. There's a small cluster of high profile people. And I feel like you're growing into that space uh, who are both, usually they're either, they're, they're physical therapists who have a lot of experience in strength conditioning, or they are certified strength conditioning coaches on top of being doctors of physical therapy. And I think about people like, to say Dr. John Russell sort of could be, he's a doctor of physical therapy, but he's actually never practiced as a physical therapist. So he's a little different, but Dr. Sam Spinelli. So actually, yeah. and Russell has actually told the story on my other podcast. Sam Spinelli is probably one of the people I think preeminently does both really well. And I want to double back around to something that you hinted at. It's about the use of language around certain things. Let's come mm -hmm. back. But we have uh, Dr. Jen Fabroni. We have, who else is there? Um, my buddy, Dr. Tim DeFrancesco is really good in that space. There are a handful of others, but what I think you were alluding to is I will refer to physical therapists only if I know that they have a very strong foundation and appreciation for strength training. Right. Yes. I'm not, and I know what you're going to say. It's this reliance over reliance on passive like treatment strategies is not the answer. You've got to get people 
understand what's wrong and get people out of program to get them strong so they recover from it. Can you do more with that? Yeah. So, I mean, traditional physical therapy, even what I've been out almost three years now. And so even when I was just in school, not too long ago, I mean, you still learn Easton, you still learn ultrasound, you learn manual, manual techniques, which manual techniques have their time and place. But when you sort of allude to a patient that that is what's going to help them and help their pain, then they become so much more reliant on you as a therapist, instead of being more autonomous and starting to do things on their own. Um, so it, it can be, it can be tricky because especially when I came to the clinic I work in now, they used to use all of those modalities and things like that for like half the treatment. And I came in and I stopped using them because you can't sit there and tell patient, some, a patient or a client that, oh yeah, this ultrasound, which is a, basically a, sort, a form of deep heat that you rub over a sore or painful area. A lot of times people would say, oh yeah, this is really going to help sort of bring more blood flow and help heal and all these things. But it's so passive that the research that we have nowadays doesn't support really any of the use of any of those modalities. So it's basically kind of a waste of time. <laughs> There's, I'm guessing a lot of it is a combination of, I'll let you explain this more and how these mm -hmm. work, but A, placebo and B, expectation effect, right? Yes. And then there's, I guess those kind of go together, but also there's also regression to the mean. We have a certain level of experience of pain or injury, and then it, it actually is healing. I mean, unless you have a, an ACL that's completely ripped off, that's a whole different sort of thing, but you know, something's painful, hurtful, you go in, you get treatment on it. And, you know, you feel better and people attribute it to the treatment when in fact, they're just going to fucking feel better after a few yeah. days. So yeah. can you explain that a bit more? Um, so it's kind of, kind of, you kind of get at the sticky area because it comes down to how you explain certain things to patients when you're doing them. Um, so if you are using instrument assisted um, soft tissue mobilization where you know you have all those scraping as people well know it now or even cupping if you're using scraping on a patient and you are saying yeah like i'm really using this to break up adhesions and break up scar tissue so you can move better and things like that then they're going to attribute okay i feel better because she's breaking up this scar tissue when in fact all we're doing is stimulating the nervous system so anytime I use soft tissue mobilization, I'm explaining, hey, you know, I'm, you know, rubbing over top of your traps right now. And that is stimulating your nervous system to tell those muscles to chill the heck out a little bit more so that when we get into our treatment, we can move a little bit better versus saying I'm breaking up your trigger points and your knots and your upper traps. And it really is the same. It's the same effect as stretching, foam rolling, massage, temporarily relaxing the neural tension of tight muscles. Mm -hmm. Someone needs a little bit more access to range of motions. The only reason why I'll ever stretch or like get someone to do something like that is let's say I need them to temporarily be able to get into range of motion. They otherwise don't normally access to perform an exercise that they need to do for whatever reason. And then if they load into that end range under control and it's not painful, then in theory with time, they should be able to gradually get a little bit more of that range, right? Mm -hmm. Is that a yep. good explanation? Yep. Good. That's a really good explanation. And unfortunately, the majority of people who use these um, certain treatments, modalities, passive things, they are still explaining it in the old school thought of things and aren't keeping up with what's going on and what we should be saying. Just sorry, just out of my own curiosity, how do you feel about foam rolling? I feel like it's quite controversial these days. Yeah. So anytime I do a post about foam rolling on my social media, I get um, at least a handful of comments of really angry people. <laughs> so foam rolling is going to be the same thing as instrument assisted mobilization, um, soft tissue mobilization or massage as others like to call it. So we're not, you're not really lengthening a muscle. You're not breaking up scar tissue or adhesions or trigger points, whatever you want to call them. What you're doing is putting some input into those muscles, which is talking to your peripheral nerves and your nervous system sending a message to the brain of like, hey, there's an input right here. And so typically foam rolling shouldn't be super, super painful. If you're doing it and you hate your hate yourself and you hate the position you're in, you're pushing too hard because yeah, it should be a little bit uncomfortable because those messages are sent to the brain and then the brain sends messages back to help sort of relax that area a little bit more and relax those muscles. But anytime um, I say that, people are like, no. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's, that's what it is nowadays. And there's actually some research studies out there that kind of compare the use of foam rolling um, with other things like 
full range of motion lifting and more dynamic active approaches. And there's really no increase or significant increase in performance with or without foam rolling. So it kind of comes down to just personal preference on what people like to do. Here's a way I can create an analogy for a lot of people that'll really bring this all together. So if we were to believe that something as passive as foam rolling or grafting, like scraping against someone's tissue could substantially remodel tissue, which is actually the traditional claim, then we would be so goddamn fragile that we couldn't like function. We would walk around and just simply like the other forces acting on us would literally tear us apart. We are so much more durable than that, that these type of things can't positively po possibly have the kind of effect that people claim that they're having. You would need to use so much more force yeah. on the body in order to create that effect. Is that a good way of kind of that is, um, I think the research studies that I usually refer to you, um, say so you need like thousands of pounds per square inch for the body part to actually remodel tissue and change tissue, or you can go in there with surgery and they can cut it. Um, and then another, another analogy I really like to use, it's like kind of like throwing a sponge at a brick wall in a sense. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I, I think I grabbed that analogy from, um, Dr. Justin Farnsworth who love him. Yes, I know. He's great. He's I love his BS oh. approach. <laughs> no Jesus, BS. I got, to, I got to hang out with him at Raise the Bar in uh, February, and he gave a really great presentation. He's a phenomenal public speaker. Love Justin. Mm -hmm. He's part of, there's sort of this interesting world. So I've seen almost like two camps of, of physical therapists that are out there, and I've seen you interact with both. Yes. And one is the group who they like to police every single thing. And they're very aggressive and memes that attack like mm -hmm. <laughs> no bullshit physio. I'll call them out. Alex, oh, yeah. Alexis. I like Alexis. I actually get along with him. Um, but those guys and some of the tribe around them, they actually get quite vicious with calling out some of the other stuff that goes on. And then Farnsworth and some of the other people, David Skolnick is another one. Yep. I, I've seen Skolnick literally antagonize these guys. But <laughs> there's a middle ground. There's a nuance. And uh, ultimately, I, I'm anti- fighting and shame-based stuff in the industry. And I don't think this stuff helps the end user. So if we can bring it back, and then I'm going to throw more questions back to Bailey. How can the person listening to this podcast, who's probably the average everyday person who just wants to get stronger, how can we turn around and give them a message that helps them figure this shit out? You know, and that's a really good question. <laughs> um, I mean, one of the reasons I, like you said, I interact with both groups. I interact with lots of physio physios who just do body weight stuff. And I interact with the ones who do the strength and conditioning and the ones who toss out the crazy memes. Cause I think I, I was actually made of a meme. I think, I don't know, was it last spring? Um, but I redeemed myself, don't worry. <laughs> it was just a little language thing, speaking of language things. Um, but I feel like it's good to have when you're following people on social media to have a different variety of people that you follow, because if you follow only one type of person or group that fits along with your biases and the type of content that you put out, you're likely to kind of get um, jaded and have the blinders on. So that's why I kind of like to dip into both, but it's so hard. It's hard to find out who's providing the best information, um, especially in a way that is easily digestible and in a way that is in a no shame sort of way. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so with the language thing, then how do you think that personal trainers can do better in terms of how they speak to their clients to avoid the shaming? So a big one with personal trainers that I see, and I think this kind of aligns with the whole, what is optimal exercise sort of way we have going on with social media right now is mm -hmm. saying the media get away from saying, well, this is a good exercise and this is a bad exercise or posts that have a big green check mark and a big red X mark. And I can say that because I used to do some of those posts. So I'm allowed to dog on this because I used to be someone like that before I really took a step back and be like, I wonder what this does for people. Because when you see a post like that, you're like, oh my gosh, you immediately feel bad if you've ever done the one with the X. Yes. And then that exercise may not be the best exercise for let's say hypertrophy, but it may be a great overall exercise to get someone moving for general fitness or general strength goals um, versus just, you know, totally dispelling it and putting a big X on it and saying, okay, don't do this. 
I can't count the number of times I've gone through clients, taught them how to move a certain way, show them an exercise, and they turn around and they say explicitly or something to the effect, oh, I was doing this wrong. And I always pause and I say, no, you weren't doing it wrong. We're just upgrading it to make sure that it works best for you, right? Mm-hmm. And then find some sort of soft language because, hey, I don't want them to feel like they were doing stuff wrong because that will cascade into doubt about everything else that we're doing. I mean, one of the most detrimental things here, like, I honestly, these arguments over optimality, I think, are, are fucking stupid. And they actually cause more harm. And infighting and policing of speech and language in our industry causes way more harm than good. At the end of the day, it's creating, it's fear-based, it's shame-based, and it's confusing the everyday person who just wants to move better and feel good. They're scared of doing shit wrong, right? And then the people, the other, the flip side is the people who use language like, oh, if you do this, you know, you're going to get hurt or dysfunctional stuff or whatever. There's a problem with that stuff too. That stuff's not helping. But at the end of the day, we will make a dent in a societal problem when it comes to obesity rates and the overall health and and inactivity and all that stuff by creating an environment that welcomes more people to step into the space where they're not scared of judgment in gyms and they're not scared that, God, if I don't do this perfectly right and optimally, if this angle lines up with this fucking thing, then they're going to get hurt. And the reality is, is humans are profoundly resilient. It goes back to what we said earlier. Like it takes a lot to cause disruption of tissue. So it's going to, yes, you can get hurt in the gym. You're probably going to feel way worse at a lifetime of inactivity, but it's really actually quite hard to get yourself hurt. I think with gradual exposures and even if you don't know exactly what you're doing anyway, rant over. No, I mean, you're, you're totally right because especially with going down to the degree of things. I mean, yes, that stuff is important for people who want to do bodybuilding, but the majority of the people who are in the gym are not in there to bodybuild. They're in there to de-stress from their work day or just try and get some blood flowing or try and get strong or, you know, maybe put on a little muscle in the process, but the majority aren't trying to be these crazy bodybuilders who have to sort of worry about that sort of stuff. And I mean, you're totally right when it comes down to the injury stuff. Because people say all the time, oh, like shoulder pressing is bad for your shoulders or upright rows are bad for your shoulders. Deadlifts are bad for your back. Squats are bad for your knees. But it's not the squats that are causing the knee pain or you're making your knee pain worse. It's how you perform them, how many reps and sets, volume management, how often you do them, volume management again, how much load you're doing, how rapidly you're progressing that load. Those are the things that can contribute to problems less likely that the movement itself is actually contributing to those issues. Yeah. Yeah. And even if they're telling you, Oh, this exercise is way better. That just puts people onto the idea that they need to program hop. Oh, I'm not doing that exercise. I need to change up my program. And then they're really not seeing any, any progress because they keep switching things because someone on the internet told them that it was better Yeah, without supplying any, you know, backing to their information. And I think it's, I think TikTok is definitely more toxic than Instagram when it comes to this, because people will just haphazardly to start stitching people's gym videos that they post and just tearing them the heck down. And I'm like, why are we doing this? Because 80% of Americans already aren't reaching the recommended weekly exercise and daily exercise guidelines. And so no wonder, because they've maybe thinking about going to the gym. So they start following people on social media. And if they're not following the right people, then why would they feel comfortable going in the gym and starting their fitness journey? Why would they feel welcome? Because they're going to be afraid that they go in there, someone's going to film them or they're going to get ridiculed or people are going to talk behind their backs. And it's just this total, just toxic environment. Yeah. Which is very unfortunate that that happens. Yeah. I like Joey Swole stuff a lot because Joey just goes after the bullies. And Joey's got such an empathetic and positive message. There's something else here that, I mean, this is probably a bit more to other coaches, but, you know, our our regular lifter listeners, I want you guys to look at this. When coaches with, quote, smaller followings complain about influencers sharing bad information, that's a pet peeve of mine because that's an entitled attitude. And I admire you, Susie, for having built a large following and audience through through your media, because building an audience with good messaging and quality information and understanding how to reach more people does a lot more good than it than 
complaining about the, the bad guys. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make them go away. And it tells me that the coaches are complaining, think that, well, hey, I'm a good coach. And if only all these influencers would go away and weren't there, then all of a sudden I would be getting these clients that I think that these influencers are getting. Two problems. One, most of those influencers, are, their followings are fake and they're all bullshit too. So they're not doing as well as you think. So don't even worry about them. And two, worry about yourself, your own messaging, building your brand, building your media, putting out good stuff, help people, serve the people right in front of you, make their lives better. More people will find you. I promise people will share you. And that is how we actually collectively make this industry better, not by fighting with each other. Yep. And I agree with that wholeheartedly. Like, I mean, if I see something that a fitness influencer posts that I don't agree with or isn't exactly correct, instead of, you know, calling them out, making a big stake about it, I'll be like, okay, well, what can I do to educate my platform so that if they see this, they can be like, okay, well, I just saw Susie's video and she explained it really well on how this wasn't necessarily the best thing to do for X, Y, Z. And then that way you're earning trust of your audience and you are educating in a way that isn't tearing other people down. Yeah. Yeah. People stop listening. If you, if you tell them that they're doing things wrong, go into defense mode and then you don't want to learn from you, which is just not, not the best way if you ask me, but um, so do you have any um, concepts or anything that you've changed your opinion on because the research has changed um, over the years? Foam rolling is a big one. Manual mm-hmm. therapy is a big one. Um, oh gosh. There's probably more, but I can't think of like many off the top of my head. But I mean, the thing is like research is just changing all the time. And in academia, they're usually already five to 10 years behind of what current research is telling us. And so that was a huge mind shift that I had to do right out of PT school because you learn all this stuff that's pretty much, I don't say all the stuff, a good chunk of the stuff is outdated in regards to how to go about treatment sessions and special tests that we have to perform and things like shoulder impingement. I mean, that's basically not even a thing anymore or the way we thought it worked doesn't even work that way. Um, So I've definitely already had to change a lot in that aspect. And then in regards to just training in general, um, I mean, it's just, it's just a constant trying to keep up with stuff. And that's just where we are in a society when it comes to fitness and strength and conditioning and rehab and things like that. You have to actively seek out the information that you want and try and keep, stay up to date. So you're giving your clients and your patients the best care that you can. Yeah, exactly. It's really important to keep up with that kind of stuff. It's easy in any field to become complacent. And, uh, and then you're, like you said, you're not providing for your clients if you're not continuously learning about how you can help them better. And it, there's an important thing here for everybody listening. One of the best ways to navigate this stuff is if you find people that you really trust, then obviously treasure those people. And what I try to do through my media is share people that I trust, that I know are evidence-based people whose ideas can shift with the weight of the evidence and who convey messaging in a way that's not shame-based and attack-based. There are people who I've interacted with and I think are doing good things in the industry. I will not share them on my media because they publicly attacked friends of mine over things that sometimes are pedantic or really not important or differences of opinion. And I've seen friends of mine be quote wrong. I believe that what they were posting was technically wrong and they didn't acquiesce to the criticism to say, except that, all right, maybe these ideas are a little outdated or there's a flaw in it. But it also means that the, the people who are rooted in these kind of attack modes, but I don't want our everyday listeners to be afraid of these people. They're not worried about you guys they are worried about people like us, (laughs) but then it means that I, I really can't go and start sharing these people around on social media because I know how they operate and I'm just not interested in perpetuating this sort of thing. So I very selective. And it's why I I mentioned someone like Sam Spinelli earlier. Sam has long been one of them. He's a friend. I know him in real life as opposed to the internet, which is not real life. Just kidding. Actually, I've developed a lot of really good relationships across the internet uh, and then met those people in my travels. But Sam's a really, really quality human being and his messaging is phenomenal. And he's always really current on his, on his stuff. So I kind of point to the physios who like to attack each other to go, look at what, how Sam's doing it. He shares, do that. that. He's got more followers than all of you combined. 
Mm -hmm. right? So he's reaching more people. What else you got, Prince Bailey? Well, I was just gonna say, talking about you know being schools being behind. I had a I had a prof. He really was against creatine um, for whatever reason. Um, and this was like five years ago, so of course there's more studies on it. But even at that time, and yeah, so he got it because he was my prof. Uh, he got it in my head that oh, creatine doesn't work. It's a big hoax. And then going out and you know moving into the industry, having to do my own research, um, and keep up with all the changing information. I was like, like, what's wrong with him? I wonder if he changed his mind. Just makes you know what, Susie? Mind. I mean, yes, technically this is slightly outside the realm of, you know, uh, you know, physical therapy, but you know, your reaction tells me that you're pretty current on the other uh, research of creatine. So do you want to, oh, yeah. do you want to speak on what benefits creatine would potentially have for women? Cause most so, of us are the women. Yeah. I feel like a lot of women are afraid of taking creatine one, because I feel like a lot of women are afraid of getting bulky in the first place. But I've been what strength weightlifting and strength training for what five years now, and I haven't turned into the Hulk, so I promise you won't get bulky. <laughs> um, so I feel like that is a huge misconception when it comes to creatine. But literally every single person, unless you have a history of kidney disease or liver stuff, can benefit from taking creatine because our body uses creatine for so many different things, including muscle contractions and strength and things like that stuff in our brain. Um, there's more studies that are rolling out on the effects of creatine with cognition in older adults for things like Alzheimer's and dementia. So it's just the benefits just keep stacking up with creatine. Um, mm -hmm. And it's good news is, is you don't really even have to load with creatine anymore. So old school thought was you need to start taking creatine five gram, five milligrams, like two to three times a day for the first few weeks to load your body up with those extra creatine stores within your body. But now we just know that, no, just start taking your scoop a day, put it in your water, your smoothie, your coffee, whatever. And then you're still going to reap the same benefits as you take it. Um, but I haven't really had any side effects from taking creatine. <laughs> yeah. well, add a, I'll add a few things that'll probably help. Time of day doesn't matter based on the research. I find that taking it when it's convenient, I find a post-workout shake, you won't notice it. Uh, creatine monohydrate is all you need. Uh, the extra, the special blends, more expensive stuff. None of that's yeah. ever been verified by research to be better. And in some cases like Crealkaline doesn't work that well at all. And there was another thought I had, I'm just trying to remember it. It's lost, but either way, I really do think it's one of the best things. I've been taking it for years and years. Oh, um, I would say to people, I would be careful about not taking creatine and caffeine simultaneously because that combination can cause GI distress in some people. Because when you think about it, creatine is something that pulls water into muscle cells, whereas caffeine is a diuretic, right? So, and, and don't worry about coffee being a super diuretic because the water volume and the caffeine actually balance each other, but technically speaking, it's a diuretic. So you just probably don't want to do them at the same time. There's a reason why caffeine and creatine combinations in pre-workouts tend to cause people running for the bathroom before the workout. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I mean, I, I can take, well, I don't, I used to take creatine with my coffee just because I knew I tested it out and knew it didn't cause me any GI upset, but I don't really do much caffeine anymore. So I'll normally, it's kind of sounds, sounds kind of gross, but I'll just get some water, put my creatine in it and mix it up and just take it like a shot, honestly, because <laughs> I don't really do a post-workout shake either. I usually right. work out and then eat dinner. So I'm like, when can I take it? Like you said, the most convenient time for you take your creatine is going to be the best time. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. How about, how about <laughs> I'm going to hijack you here for a second, Bailey? How about the whole <laughs> moniker Susie squats? Like we, we did want to bring you on too to actually talk about squatting. I think that, I mean, I don't like dealing in generalizations, but I work with enough women over 12 years to say women like trading lower body more than men do and men like trading upper body. So yeah. kind of working with squatting and do you have anything to kind of say about, you know, to encourage women to really lean into this, embrace it, any thoughts? Yeah. So another sort of toxic thing on social media that we see is, um, astograph squats or ATG squats when it comes to back squatting. And I want to comment on that because a lot of times people will look at videos of people doing those types of squats where their torso stays really upright and their astograph, and it just looks like a super pretty squat. And then they try and do it and it doesn't look like that. And I really want to caution everyone listening is try not to compare your squat to anyone else's squat. Because although we all look 
similar because we are all human. There are so many differences within our anatomical makeup of our bones that influences how one squat looks different from another squat based off of how wide your pelvis is based off of where your hip sockets sit. So if your hip sockets face further, just straight in front, your stance is going to be narrower versus someone who was most women have hip sockets that rotate outwards a little bit more just because, you know, childbirth and all that stuff um, versus someone like that, you're going to ha have a wider stance and that's okay. Um, and things like, oh gosh, we can even get into femur and tibia and torso length as well. Cause that's, that's a big one. So what I mean by that is based on your ratios of how much of your height is made up of your torso versus your femur length, which is your thigh bone. And then your tibia, which is your lower leg bone, that's going to influence how you squat. So I'm a female who has really long legs and a torso that's like two inches tall. <laughs> so when I back squat in order to keep the barbell weight over the middle of my foot, which is, should be everyone's goal is to try and keep that weight over the middle of your foot. So you don't fall forward or you don't fall backwards. In order to do that, I have to almost fold in half like a pancake and my squats look ugly. And I've been made fun of on TikTok before by all the ATG squad people for my squats because I fold over like a pancake and I hit parallel, maybe a little bit lower. And that's no one's fault, but my own anatomical makeup. And you can get into the nitty and gritty of things like mobility as well, because mobility matters. If your ankles are limited in mobility, you're going to have a more forward torso lean. If you have some limitations with your hip rotation, that can also limit your depth and how much you can stay upright in a squat. So there's definitely a combination of factors, but I feel like we need to stop shoving down, oh, there's only one best squat form that everyone should be doing. There's, there, there's like, that, there's all that. There's like, there's more than that even. Like there's so much, like I'll add a couple of things. Um, one thing I look for is you now squats do not cause knee pain. Let's no, they don't. And your knees can go over your toes, please, for the love of God. Absolutely. <laughs> However, in my experience, and I find this shows up in lunges and split squats almost more than squatting, but there are some people where their knees don't feel great. Even when you quote, clean up the movement pattern to mm -hmm. eliminate it, they don't feel great when they have more knee travel, like aggressively past the toes. So sometimes I'll set those people up with a box squat, which artificially limits how deep they go anyway, but we're looking for a more vertical shin, which produces the same thing you described, which is more of a forward lean torso. I tend to squat a bit that way. If anyone knows who Lane Norton is and sees him squat, he folds over like a lawn chair when he squats too, right? So this is super common. Um, I, I saw something recently and, and Pat, Dr. Pat Davidson, who's a PhD in exercise uh, science, he posted this and I agree with him we see all these posts about how there's this glute dominant versus hip dominant Bulgarian split squat. I've never given a shit about that. Okay. If you're programming for glute like training, there are other exercises that I actually go for. If you're programming for, for quad training, okay. Lunge type variations, split squats. They're one of mine squatting, leg pressing other things. I'm not worried about which way I'm biasing. I bias based on, which one feels better on low back, hips, knees, especially. So I really don't give two shits about whether we're trying to target glutes. Guess what? Whatever way you do it, your glutes are going to be super sore. It's going to hit both your quads and both your hips. Anyway, is there a difference? There sure is. Do I really care about that? No, I choose it for completely different reasons. And the way Pat said it too, it probably doesn't matter that much. It's probably just the loading, the intensity, the nutrition that really, you know, there, there's so much, uh, concurrent muscle contraction and overload with everything involved in it, that that's probably has more to do with it than I think what is a fairly small difference. So we're getting into the weeds on this stuff here a bit, but it just kind of shows that this stuff doesn't matter that much. Just move in a way that you feel best. Yeah. And I, I, that's huge. Cause I mean, I, I know I've done posts before where, you know, you can change your line of pool or your shin angle, this, that, and the other for certain exercises. But I mean, the biggest thing to realize is even though you, if you say you're biasing your quads versus your glutes, both of those muscles are still working regardless. They're still working. Yes, you can mess with the end biomechanics a little bit, 
but it's not like you totally turn off your quads when you do a glute via split squat and vice versa. Exactly. Yeah. And so what I, do you think the importance is of, of putting a squat into a program for someone? I think it is extremely important. I even put squats into programs for my super elderly patients that I treat in the clinic because you have to base essentially squat to get up and out of a car, off of a chair, off the toilet, out of your bed. Like you, we do squats way more than we realize that we do squats on a daily basis. So no, I'm not necessarily loading up my 88 year old man with a barbell because he can't tolerate that, but I'm definitely giving him a kettlebell and having him do box squats to a chair that's a standard height or a little bit below so that when he is discharged from therapy, he is able to better stand up from a chair and the commode. Those are so important. And it doesn't matter, in my opinion, it doesn't matter which squat variation you do. It's which squat variation you, you feel the best is for you and it's based on your goal. So if that's a back squat, cool. You could do front squats, you could do landmine squats, um, box squats, um, even down to splitting into you know split squats. So I feel like there's a lot of misconception of, oh, you have to back squat. No, you don't. Find a squat variation that works for you. I personally like back, well, I'm trying to like back squats because I'm actually, I didn't even mention this, overcoming a labral tear on my left hip. So I've been working um, with Haley Berrigan and she and I have been working through all this squat stuff for me. And for the longest time, we switched to front squats because that was more comfortable for me. And now we're to back squats. So it just comes down to what your goal is, what you enjoy doing, because if you enjoy it, you're likely going to stick to that and working around like things like aches and pains and finding a variation that works for you. Bailey, how would you have Ron squat? Ron, yes, I do. Box squats with a dumbbell. And Ron is how old now? Ron is just about 90. <laughs> yeah. Heck yeah. Hey, yeah. He's a sweetheart. He's hey. the nicest man. Yes. And then Larry, so Larry's 72 and like throw the safety bar on his shoulders and he just, he's got pretty good range of motion and he can squat really heavy. Like that man yeah. is fun to work with. Um, cool. What else you got, Bailey? Anything else? Um, yeah, I guess just um, for beginners that are listening, what do you think are uh, quote mistakes that people can avoid um, to more efficiently go through their fitness journey? Mistakes. Um, stop buying all the supplements for <laughs> mistake number one. Buy some, well, not, I wouldn't even, well, I go back and forth. Would I recommend creatine for beginners? Maybe possibly, but would I rather them be more dialed in and their nutrition, their recovery and their training volume and load management before we toss in creatine more likely that than the first one. Um, I would just let them know that, I mean, we all started from square one. I started from square one in the gym. I did all the high volume stuff and did all the quote unquote influencer workouts. I'm not saying they're bad workouts, but the sweat, you know, the sweat Instagram swipe workouts where you just swipe mm -hmm. through. So everyone starts somewhere. So try and put the judgment, the fear of judgment away. I know that's hard to do, but just try your best to, because odds are when you go into the gym, most everyone is focusing on themselves and what they're doing and worried about what they're doing versus what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And in, in relation to that, don't be afraid to ask for help. Um, there's personal trainers in there, or if you see someone in the gym who really looks like they know what they're doing, or they just finished an exercise that you want to try, I mean, go up and say, Hey, do you have a couple minutes, um, to help me with this exercise you just did? I think that's really cool because you will find that a lot of people are more welcoming in the gym. Cause I know when I used to lift in the gym, I have my garage gym now, thank gosh. But when I used to lift in a gym, um, I have resting bitch face. And so I tried to be more smiley so that the newbies would be more comfortable coming up to me and asking. Right. But I want to circle back to the supplement thing I talked about. Um, and I feel like that kind of comes in the territory with social media as well, because I feel like a lot of people in the fitness realm are associated with supplement companies, which is great. However, you got to dial in your own nutrition and the real food that you're putting in your body before you start introducing all these supplements. Um, if I were to recommend one supplement, it'd probably be protein because the majority of people under eat on protein to begin with, but trying to get everything from your whole foods is huge. 
that's it. <laughs> you got nothing else. Well, I'm thinking. <laughs> I'm thinking. Um, another thing is probably focusing on the main movements that we all do. So in your workouts, um, have a squat movement, have a hinge movement, a lunge movement, and then push and pull. So push is normally, I mean, quite literally thinking about pushing weight away from your body. So a lot of times that's chest and bench press and then pull movements are more ones that you are pulling in towards your body. So a lot of back exercises, having all of those basics is a really good way to start off with a sort of good program. Um, and then just be careful of what you watch and see on social media. <laughs> now that we're kind of circling back to all of that, um, just kind of take it out with a grain of salt, take it with an open mind. If you follow some people on social media that you really, really like, just kind of watch and see how they interact with others, see what kind of information they're posting on their page, um, what their backgrounds are. I know education and credentials are everything in this world. However, they do and can help give some sort of merit to someone in more sort of confidence on that they know what they're talking about. That's a, that's a tricky one because it is a tricky one. There's, you know, for example, I won't say a name, but um, I recently found that a, an account, a very large account, had straight up plagiarized one of my pal Danny Matrangas posts. And so I highlighted the plagiarism. I didn't directly like go at this account. But I see people share this account stuff relentlessly. And I'll give it away by saying it's a doctor, but it's a doctor of pharmacy who basically kind of misrepresents. And this doctor shares a lot of very, very relatable, you know, stuff about exercise and nutrition and then drops the occasional piece of garbage in there, like how sugar is more dangerous than cocaine, um, okay. stuff like that. Right. So I hope most people will trust their judgment uh, and do a little digging and, one of the tricky things is when you get someone, I'll say it, who's got doctor in front of their name, you've got to kind of take a closer look. And I mean, for you, for example, you're a doctor of physical therapy, but if someone takes a closer look, they'll realize you actually have considerable expertise in strength training and, and though the, the allied and associated fields, but not everybody who has doctor in their name is speaking from a place on topics that they actually have any education in whatsoever. And there's a handful of high profile things that I'm not even gonna get into. I don't wanna to do that, but it's not that easy, unfortunately. So, um, but I think it's a good starting point. There are a number of people in this realm. I've thrown out a bunch of names of, of doctors of exercise science and doctors of physical therapy who I think are really credible. So I think people just have to do a little bit of digging. I think you have to find a baseline of credible people in the industry. And you kind of branch out from the people that they interact with and they feature. Yep. And I think that's some really good advice. Cause I mean, I have, I've created a nice little, um, I guess, I don't know. Like I kind of dip my, my hand in a lot of cookie jars in social media because I actually started my social media account started off as more, um, fitness influencer esque, which is, you know, just posting a lot of workouts, posting some selfies, some motivational quotes, which there's nothing wrong with that. I've just grown as the years have gone on. So I'm still friends with some of those girls. And then I'm dipped into the physical therapy world and the strength and conditioning world. Um, but I think it's, it makes you a more well-rounded person, I think. So for new people in the gym, if you can find certain accounts and follow and just kind of have a variety of different good accounts to follow. Well, I don't, it speaks to what I said earlier about, you know, not being, you know, bitter about people who have larger followings who quote, you know, what the influencers are doing. If we have very successful people in our space who they're evidence-based and, and maybe you get someone like a Jordan Syatt who doesn't necessarily have a lot of educational credentials or it's a Sohi Lee who does have very extensive educational credentials um, or Molly Galbraith or any number of other people, large followings. And I mean, it not, I, it, I don't think it's fair to compare Sohi to, you know, a lot of influencers, but Sohi puts up a lot of stuff that's highly shareable. There's a lot of video of her exercising. There's a lot of lifestyle stuff. It's really backed with great information to a specific audience. And she's someone I recommend easily. And I think people like her and Jordan are beating the influencers at their own game. And I will say this, a lot of the influencers, a lot of their following and their, their media is fake. A lot of that stuff is actually very curated. It's based on things like engagement pods where people get together and agree to share each other's stuff. And it's not real. 
And one of the things I'm most proud about is having built a very real organic following and, and highly engaged uh, account, which is cool. It lets me share good information with more people. I want more people to find my work and I want to turn around. And the reason why I brought you on is I want people to find you and follow your stuff. I want people to plug into what Bailey's doing. I want to get Bailey 3000 followers so that she can get her Lululemon ambassador, which she jokes. <gasps> about. Um, well, hopefully I can send more people your way. <laughs> we, oh, go ahead. No, I, yeah, I'd love to give out information and help educate people and stuff too. So, And social media is a weird place. Like you said, I mean, thankfully I can say with a badge of honor that I have never purchased followers, but when you first start out, I mean, there are people that are coming and like, okay, I'll grow your social media for you. I can buy you these followers. We can get up your engagement rates. Um, and then you have, like you talked about, Andrew, is the, the engagement pods. And I did fall for that one time. And I was in one engagement pod um, long time ago when I first started my page. And gosh, it is a hell of a lot to keep up with. And like, it was just insane. So I was only in there for like a month and I was like, what am I doing? Like, this is taking up more of my time than actually trying to post educational content on my page. <laughs> so I'm done. <laughs> I, I chuckle when people get in my DMs, try to like, hey, we could help you with this. I'm like, I teach this stuff. I could literally show you guys how to do it for real. Right? Like I literally teach this stuff. But that's a side tangent. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to come talk to us. This has been wonderful. Um, we appreciate it. Um, where do people find you on social media and elsewhere? So you can find me on Instagram and TikTok, um, dr.suzy.squats. Um, you can also find me on my website, which is drsuzysquats.com. Um, and I'm a little bit on YouTube now that I have my program launched because all of my form videos for my exercises come from YouTube. So it's basically like a free exercise library that is going to be growing. So if you want to go check that out, Dr. Susie Squats on YouTube as well. There we go. All right. Thank you again, everybody uh, who tuned in. What's that? I said, thank you so much. And everybody tuning in, uh, thanks for listening. If you have found us through Susie's Media, well, if you can, if you scroll through some of our other guests, a lot of our episodes are one-offs about specific topics. They're shorter. They're very easy to digest. But you may find uh, some of our other guests like Susan Ebergall, who's really wonderful. She was, she was great. So early on. So maybe you'll stick around. Maybe you'll enjoy it. Or maybe you'll find this, this podcast and what we talk about is really helpful to someone in your world who's maybe a little bit newer to this and is looking for good basic information. So thank you again and stay tuned next week for another new episode.